Welcome to the Cis Lunar Experience. I'm your host, Vincent Maroli. Together on this show, we are going to interview the movers and shakers of this new space economy. Those courageous CEOs, chief engineers, academics, and policymakers that are turning dreams into reality. There's a lot of companies working on things that will literally change the way we think of um, space and accessibility to space and what we can do and how we can function in space. And a lot of it's kind of stuck, you know, in this pre-revenue, com- pre-commercial, semi-commercial coming from a government grant to yeah. actually having a commercially viable product. So a lot of it's stuck there. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what we, we really tend to target is that because a lot of the innovation or a lot of the funding that is going to space, if, if you, all you got to do is dig one little layer into hmm. the numbers and you realize that the vast majority of that is going to really a, a small group of companies. That was Aaron Burnett, CEO and founder of Spaced Ventures. They built a space-specific crowdfunding platform that is bridging the gap between pre-revenue space companies and the average Joe and Jill investor. They have thousands of active investors on their platform and are constantly coming out with new deals. We sat down to have a conversation. I hope you enjoy. Aaron, Burnett, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Good Looking to be forward here. to the conversation. Absolutely. This uh, this isn't our round two. We didn't have <laughs> crazy dogs barking yeah. and yeah, know, all that a party outside. Pretty much. <laughs> it was it was quite an adventure. Um, so yeah, so down here in the Space Coast, Florida, uh, here for this next week, first one of the Experience Week. Very excited about it. Walk us through. I think probably what would be best for the audience and myself as well. Give us the the elevator pitch on just what Space Ventures does right now. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we'll time machine, we'll go back sure. and then work our way up. So we have more of a vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that makes sense. So, you know, with Space Ventures, we are building the world's largest community of space investors. That's the stated uh, kind of goal. And we may already be there technically. Uh, you know, we are essentially an angel investment platform for early stage space companies and really trying to ramp up innovation in the industry. <clears throat> Got a little emotional there, I guess. No, <laughs> uh, really trying to ramp up innovation in the industry, ultimately to, you know, push humanity to Mars, the solar system and the stars faster. Right. So, yeah. um, goal is, you know, a couple of different goals here, but one is to make like a thousand SpaceX's, right. Yeah. Um, with a million space investors backing them, right. That That's the, kind of the goal there right yeah um so yeah ultimately ramp up innovation in space really fast so we can all go to mars in our lifetimes instead of just thinking about it for kids or grandkids yeah on on that last point we won't get too into the weeds here but honestly no desire to go to mars personally i love space moon sounds great mars is just a little little too far away for me so um, the caveat to that, right, I say that a lot, go to mm-hmm. Mars. You know, I'm not going to be the first hundred, first thousand, mm-hmm. probably not even the first hundred thousand. You know, when I, when I want to go to Mars, it's, you know, 
essentially a tourist destination, <laughs> right? It'll have a hotel, yeah, a bar of some kind, I'm sure. So that that's when I think of going to Mars, that's what I think of. So, that, I mean, one of the reasons why we need a thousand SpaceXs, right? It's yeah. not to um, just go have a interesting journey and, you know, one-way trip or something like that. It's yeah. make it so that humans are truly multi-planetary species is on many different planets, hmm. um, on the moon as well, potentially. Um, yeah, just in, make, make life as, as far as we know it, our con, uh, idea of our conception of life, expand that out into the solar system and then in theory beyond. So yeah, yeah. that for me, when I say go to Mars, I think a lot of people think, oh, you're going to go there to die or you know, yeah. you're some kind of adventure. I'm not really the adventurer type. It's kind of like, uh, get on a cruise ship and go to Mars as a destination. That's how I want to get to at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and yeah. I mean that in itself speaks to a level of optimism that 34, 32, yeah, 34, yeah. 34. I personally believe that that's totally doable. There's a lot of people out there that would say malarkey. There's mm-hmm. no way that we're going to get space hotels and bars. There'll probably be alcohol because humans <laughs> wouldn't drink when work is hard, but Space hotel on Mars, that's probably a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. Yeah. And um, full disclosure, it, it, at the current rate, it won't. we won't get there. Not in our lifetime. Yeah. It'll happen. I'm pretty sure it'll happen at some point, but mm-hmm. not in our lifetime. So that is kind of the whole purpose for what we're doing, right? Ramping up innovation. Um, you know, if we're able to, you know, first principles, if you will, right? Um, yeah thinking about what does it take to have that level of society on Mars? You need, um, you know, essentially you're gonna need a thousand different (laughs) people innovating at the level of SpaceX, or you can, you can insert a few other examples in there. Um, but enough to push humanity, you know, step functions forward. We need a lot more of that. Um, whether that's robotics and, deep technology, advanced materials, advanced manufacturing. There's a lot of different function or facets of technology that need to exist in order for us to be able to have the vision mm-hmm. I have, which is probably the most optimistic, one of the most optimistic, uh, you know, viewpoints. Uh, and that's really what I'm pushing for that. Cause that's what, that's what I want. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, that, that's a big, big goal. <laughs> I love it. And so, uh, yeah, that, you know, it's like building off of like Elon's goal of, making humans multiplanetary technically i guess you know two people there is multiplanetary you know for me i take multiplanetary a little bit differently and say you know we need to have like actual life and the the quality of life that we would expect there um that kind of thing you know what i mean um Mm -hmm. i'm sure it'll be different but you know a different level of uh expectations and just like roughing it um, but it's it's the kind of thing, right? If you you can use the the West as an example, sure. People thought it was insane to have you know cities or whatever. Probably <laughs> out west, it was like gold rush or what have you. Yeah. You know now it's obvious that you would move that way. You have trains, or in our case, spaceships taking people, you know, different things out to orbit or, or out west or whatever, right? And then things pop up around there, and whole economies get built. Yeah. Well, I mean, the same way, so I, I grew up in Georgia and we're down here in Florida. And one of the things I remember learning is before, before air conditioning, 
there was, I mean, there were people in Florida, but there was a lot less. And before we had decent, you know, uh, insecticides against mosquitoes, there was even less people down in Florida because it was just a hostile place to get malaria and such. Now that's gone. And it's the place that you go to retire or watch Epic Rockets launch. And no one even thinks about it. Yeah. So it, you know, innovation gets spurred on because you go to new locations and you have to solve brand new problems. Yeah. I mean, that's one way, you know, needing it. It kind of is a forcing function sometimes. Yeah. Um, I hadn't thought of Florida in that way, but yeah, that's probably a good way of thinking about it. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of historical examples, right? Um, For sure. But yeah, you know, sometimes it's innovations that allow for it to happen. Sometimes it's innovation is a requirement for it to happen, Hmm. you know, so one could go, it could go either way. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, it's about making it happen faster. And, uh, there's a lot of companies working on really interesting things. You know, so it's not just a, you know, pipe dream, right? There's a lot of companies working on things that will literally change the way we think of, um, space and accessibility to space and what we can do and how we can function in space, uh, on other planets. Hmm. And a lot of it's kind of stuck you know, in this, in this pre-revenue, com- pre-commercial, semi-commercial coming from a government grant to yeah. actually having a commercially viable product. So a lot of it's stuck there. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what we, we really tend to target is that, you know, kind of pre-revenue. Um, there's other options, you know, companies um, can utilize what we do for all sorts of, you know, public allocations and stuff like that. But that early stage is if we can really ramp that up, yeah. then you can see the, uh, you know, the effect that would happen downstream because a lot of the innovation or a lot of the funding that is going to space, if, if you, all you gotta do is dig one little layer into hmm. the numbers and you realize that the vast majority of that is going to really a, a small group of companies, um, as few as a, you know, the 2020 numbers, this was even before a lot of the SPACs, Okay. Happened. Um, sure. And just the 2020 numbers was like 70% went to nine companies or something like that of Jeez. all of all private funding. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure <laughs> out that there's not, there's definitely money going to other companies, uh, younger companies. Obviously, they don't need as yeah. much as a later stage company either. But what you start to do is you start to see that the seed and Series A is kind of stagnated even declined in some ways. Hmm. Um, not much growth there with all this massive money that's going to space. You hear that narrative all the time Sure, that a lot of that money is going later and later stage because it's kind of money, you know, pushing a lot of the launch companies and things like that, that it, we're already raising earlier kind of need to keep raising to, to do more. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at that point there's already, there's clear evidence that they can deliver. It's, an easier pill to swallow from an investor standpoint. There's yeah. SpaceX has already physically done it. Sure, I'll, I'll try to get a little bit of return here, but yeah. the true innovation companies, those are the ones that are potentially still starving on the vine for the moment. Yeah, I, I think some are getting funded, right? Um, but not all of them. And yeah. they're and, and the vast, I would argue the vast majority aren't getting funded. And, you know, there's plenty of snake oil out there. A lot of people like to say space just because they can get people to pay attention. And so, you know, you can't just go out and throw money at all of them, Mm -hmm. which is part of what we do, right? We we focus on 
space as uh, as an investment kind of thesis. And uh, what that means is you end up developing your own views and own kind of um, mechanisms for due diligence that allow you to do all sorts of different deep technologies mm-hmm. um, operating in space, right? And, and you kind of have to have a, a decent viewpoint on that. Um, and so we, we do that, put them through our platform, send them out to space investors. You know, what I hope here soon is, you know, no, no arguments to be had. The world's largest community of space investors. <laughs> and um, you kind of go from there. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Yeah. So that's, that's a, a really great dive into what Space Ventures is doing. Walk us back a little bit. So younger age, first got hooked on space, first heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess tell us that story. And yeah, tell us how like, I'm, I'm kind of cheating since we yeah. already covered this briefly. But but cover how that initial story of getting hooked on space led you to that, that long-term thinking vision of, mm-hmm. well, what could I do? What could I do in 10, 15? Yeah. So I think, you know, everyone has a little bit of that when they're a kid, think about what they can do, what they want to do when they grow up. Right. <clears throat> My first interaction with space would have been the memorable interaction. I'm sure I thought about this as well, but the one that really sticks my mind is space camp, that movie, Mm -hmm. the little robot puts his friend in space with uh, all of the adventures that come along. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah. So anyway, you know, I definitely had that kind of interest and was intrigued by, you know, space and stuff as a little kid, you know, fast forward, I think over the years, I, I enjoyed science fiction, Mm-hmm. Grew up watching Stargate SG-1 with my dad and my brother. and uh, Classic show. Yeah, we l- loved it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it probably isn't the best, you know, critically critically acclaimed show or anything like that, but Great Adventures, right? It makes you think yeah. about cool stuff that can happen in space and all that. The science is weird, but eh, it's, it's fun. <laughs> Jack O'Neill. Yeah, who knows? You know, maybe we still will uncover a Stargate someday. But... Um, so anyway, that was, you know, for me, that was the, uh, you know, uh, it, what it cemented in my mind was reality hmm. is different than fiction and, and fun, right? So okay. I kind of bifurcated those two things in my head. I said, okay, well, if I'm going to be doing something real, you know, science fiction is cool and a good thing to like kind of sit down and think about when you're not in your nine to five, but nine sure. to five needs to be, you know, a little different. You know, so I went through the, all the normal kind of things, want to be an athlete and all this other stuff. But mm-hmm. I think I put that in that bucket. And the same, being a professional athlete, being an astronaut, that's, that's in a bucket over here. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. And so maybe I'm pragmatic or whatever, just felt like that was reality. And so, yeah, you know, I felt, I think like many do, which is that space and stuff is for other people, hmm. smarter people, richer people, pilots, whatever. Um, so it was pretty easy for me to kind of say, okay, that's for, that's for someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how I grew up in my first kind of interactions with space. Okay. So, so one of the other things that you shared with me was from that young age, there was this deep desire of, I want to make an impact somehow, some way in the world. Talk. Yeah, I think I think that's like a, hu- a little bit of human, maybe you could argue hubris kind of thing where it's like, 
how can I, you know, it's kind of, we're, we're full of stories, right? About sure. people that have done things. It's like the Einsteins of the world or whatever, right? Like they, one person somehow changes the course of human history, right? Yeah. So I think we're inundated with that. I think uh, we probably hype that up more than it needs to be. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's saying, you know, what, what can we do? How can we make an impact? Well, what can I do with my life that is meaningful, right? And so, yeah, like that Nate, that kind of desire, I think was, you know, ingrained in me. I don't think anyone necessarily did that. Maybe it's just the nature of growing up and listening to stories that we listened to growing up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely was something. And, you know, as, as a kid, it was very imaginative and trying to figure out what I could do and what was that thing. So then I, you know, fast forward to, um, college, what have you. Um, you know, I was doing business and, and, uh, marketing and finance were my two degrees technically. Um, so came out of school with that actually the thought process was I was going to be, I thought maybe a financial advisor. Hmm. That was kind of the thought process. And in fact, I had two offers coming out of school. One was for, um, Lexus Nexus, which is a technology. They do a lot of data and stuff like that. Fortune okay. 500. Um, well they were then, I don't know if they are now. <laughs> and then, um, the other was, uh, Charles Schwab, yeah. which was, would have been like the series seven route financial mm-hmm. advisor. And I didn't take the Charles Schwab or I took the marketing, uh, the twist here <laughs> kind of full <laughs> circle, but you know, took the uh, marketing at a fortune 500 kind of route and, uh, then yeah, kind of landed in, in that and realized I didn't like fortune 500. It felt quite bureaucratic. Yeah. So then I started moving into the startup world. Okay. Enjoyed that. Um, it wasn't really all that long and then it's, and then kind of hit 25. I have what I call my quarter life crisis, which was this idea of like, am I making that impact? I can kind of forecast out Hmm. my life from where I'm at. You know, let's assume even a successful trajectory. Am I happy with that? And I felt like I wanted to do something with more meaning Hmm. or impact. I didn't, did I really know what that was or no, it's just young enough and you can make stupid decisions when you're younger and still be okay. And so, um, that was, you know, that was my thought process there right around the same time I'm having this, whatever it is, crisis, epiphany, whatever. Um, my friend is, uh, teaching in Paraguay and, um, he's like, Hey, we need, we need some teachers and they always need teachers. I mean, they don't, they pay almost nothing. It's essentially a volunteer role. Um, and, um, and some, some they pay better, but this one was paying nothing essentially. Um, barely cover cost of living, but I was like, okay, interesting. And so I thought, well, go down. And if I do something like that, which ended up was teaching second grade, which was quite a jump from, (laughs) from business and and marketing. And, um, so I could do that. It's an interesting kind of experience, collect, collect the experience, figure that out. And so, you know, it was also like the thought process was, you know, if you want to do something meaningful, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, Teach Through America, there's all these different programs. Yeah. There's a reason those volunteer programs kind of exist. Um, I think it is for people trying to figure out what they want to do. So I kind of made my own version of that and, and did that. Yeah. And that's what I did for two years. Um, taught for almost a year of that and then volunteered do, doing some teaching as well, but also uh, like 
other other grades and stuff needed me, but then also uh, volunteering at a children's home down in uh, own Paraguay as well, just to nice. kind of like get a you know get that sense of everything. Yeah. So yeah, it was like how do I how do I make an impact? Yeah. So yeah, that was where I was at, and um, yeah, it puts me there in South America at the time of 25 years old. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting how. If, if life isn't crazy enough, it's, it, it goes back to the, the old Ferris Bueller quote. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around and every once in a while, you might just miss it. Fantastic. I watched that probably a couple months ago. And I can think of a story of my father doing the same thing. Um, he was in the Air Force for many years. And he was over in the, the sand pit somewhere, in, as he would call it. And he was 40. He was like, what in the world am I still doing over here? Like, I've been handling my own finances and friends for a while. Let me switch. And he had a not quite midlife, you know, whatever, 40-year-old crisis and made that dramatic switch. But he did it with with wife and, and kids already here. And, you know, I'm kind of doing the same thing as 20, 24, 25 year old, none of those yet. Uh, and so there's, there's definitely different benefits of you have a lot more flexibility when you're 25, you can move to Paraguay. Um, except, you know, maybe you don't have the experience and the built up capital to make that jump. But if you, I mean, I, I think it all comes down to if you, if you don't take those opportunities, then you'll end up being 80 and just yeah. mad. Yeah, you could, right? And and I think that's kind of the the risk of just taking the safe or predictable route. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I might not be the best example for everyone, but you know, I do say you can do some pretty crazy stuff and gather some of those experiences. And and literally, I think your twenties the the thing you need to do during your twenties because there's a lot of flexibility. But the thing you really need to do is collect experiences as many as possible, hmm. diverse experiences. Um, one to open up your mind. So if you can travel, like when I say travel, I don't mean, Oh, just backpack and do whatever. (laughs) When I think of travel, I think like actually live and experience places. I never essentially never, I lived out of a backpack for uh, almost five years. Um, but it wasn't in like backpack from one place to the next for every week. That's like its own little subculture. So Mm. you're not really, you're experiencing that culture, but you're essentially just living with other travelers and Sure. doing this hostile sort of thing. Yeah. That's its own experience. And you can do that. You know, I'd like lived in different places for years or months at a time. And, uh, you know, so of the five years I was just in South America for, or in three countries in South America, Ecuador, hmm. Paraguay, and, and Argentina, and really Buenos Aires, Argentina. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as if you're young, it's like, that's kind of what you should do. Yeah. Because um, you need to kind of know that most people don't really know what they want to do. That's kind of that's just the way it is. You you don't really know what it is you want to do until you've kind of experienced some things, Mm -hmm. Um, and then you'll be able to look back and be like, oh yeah, I actually use these random assortment of experiences to do something interesting with, uh, and 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 built a interesting career or life with. Um, So I, I think it's I think it's a good thing, you know you'd be surprised at what you need. You know, I, I was lucky enough to not come out of college with debt. Um, mm. I had to do 
do some of my own work to make that happen. Uh, and my parents were able to help a little bit as well. Nice. So I was able to come out with, you know, zero on the balance sheet, which is better than most, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I would argue that like, unfortunately, you know, the degree was not worth the <laughs> expense. Almost in most cases, it's not worth the expense. Right. In some rare situations it is. Um, even with, with a marketing and finance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and most definitely with things like, um, marketing, um, just because a lot of it is human psychology and things like that. Um, yeah. I've learned far more from doing it than I have. And I think everyone says this, it's, this isn't like a, you know, a, a crazy new thing. You, you learn quite a bit more from doing it. Um, and just experiencing that than you would from got the uh, train in the background again. Good um, stuff than you would from just any of the other, you know, books or what have you. And it, but you know, it takes them a while to write books and by that time <laughs> they're already out of date. Um, yeah. so anyway, you know, kind of thinking about the collection of all that and, and, and what it is that you're doing, you're really just collecting those experiences, taking that learning and, um, you can make the jump better than you, than you better than you would think you would be able to. Cause I, I didn't, we didn't have, I didn't have much savings. I saved a little bit from a couple of years, uh, it was like three, years of professional experience at that point. Yeah. So I had some savings, but I was living for less than $500 a day independently. It wasn't like living in someone's else's yeah. house the whole time, um, in Paraguay. So you can do that. You can be frugal, um, mm -hmm. and still collect some experiences mm -hmm. can get, can get rough to the point where I met my now wife, uh, in yeah. Buenos Aires. And we, <laughs> we, we got married and like, you know, that night or the like day after or whatever I was looking and the bank account was down to $500. <laughs> yeah. And that was, I think, I don't think she had yeah. anything either. Uh, really it was like shared essentially at that point. It's like, uh, yikes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a very nerve wracking place to be. Back, also, is, back is up against the wall. There's yeah. only one way to go. Yeah. That's one way of looking at it. Right. <laughs> um, as we were in Buenos Aires, at that point we were literally sharing a house so we had like a floor but it was you know we shared a kitchen with an old lady uh so we were had roommates as a, as a married couple nice <laughs> yeah. so yeah that was a uh, interesting kind of an interesting uh experience but you know pushed me to to do to start doing remote work hmm. um because i had to yeah and i had all this experience but so going back into getting a normal, real, whatever you want to call it job. Um, you know, working remotely, doing whatever I could back when remote work was still a perk. This was back in 2016 and it was like cool. There was a perk to be remote work. So you'd get a substantial discount on your salary. That was normally the case. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had to work my way into it. So yeah, yes, there's some risk involved, but you can, mm -hmm get pushed right right up right up against a wall if you need to and be surprised at what you can do when your <laughs> yeah. back is against a wall there's a well, there's a quote from was it napoleon hill great book think and grow rich i'm probably going to butcher it but it's what is it uh, there is no limit to what a man can achieve uh when he risks everything on a single turn of the wheel hmm. it's like go for it, it yeah it's it, it's scary and it's nerve-wracking it's hard kind of to take that kind of risk um but yeah i mean yeah. 
you know, to the point where when I, when we were starting space ventures, I'm I'm skipping ahead a little bit, (laughs) but it was like, okay, we have so much money, um, in the bank account. So, you know, my wife and I would have been together for, we'd have been married for probably about four years, maybe 2020, maybe going on five, 2021 at the time. So we were able to have built up a little bit more in the bank account. And we're like, what can we, and at this time it had been two years and I wanted to be in space. So we'll go back to that. (laughs) But you know, uh, I wanted to, I had always had like, here, here's a number I can kind of put aside to take a year minimum, Hmm. maybe two, if we can stretch it so we can build my own company. Cause I'd been at startups ever since, um, ever since you know, a quarter life crisis, I already was at a startup, but then I've been working at startups, you know, in remote work yeah. during that whole time from 2016, to 2020. So it's like, now I have a little bit of something to risk again. <laughs> so I have this, I have a little bit of a, of a habit of, you know, getting something and then risking it all. Um, yeah. um, not that it was all of it, you know, it was a little bit more intelligent that time, sure. but yeah, I mean, if you can take risk, mm-hmm. um, calculated enough to, you know, you know, not gonna, I'm still gonna have a roof over my head or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can do, you can do quite a bit with it. Um, it's never, it never feels certain in the moment though. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good, that's a good reminder for, I mean, for myself, right? This is, this is a new thing for me. Uh, I've got all my Excel sheets and, uh, all the, the ramen and chicken from Sam's club, um, <laughs> for my budgets. And it's, it might, it might fail miserably, but it just might not. Exactly. Yeah. You gotta take that risk. It's when I see people that are trying to take risk like you and yeah, I mean, I just kind of remind that, you know, tell stories like this and yeah. you can take the risk. Um, I, I don't, I don't view myself as having arrived at by any means. <laughs> Uh, sure. I feel like I'm taking a risk every day, you know, doing what we're doing. But, um, yeah, it's just, it can be worth it. Yeah. it. One way of thinking about it, I think some people have said this and it's helped me think about it. One way of thinking about how you're going to live your life is like, if, if you're thinking of your life as an actual biography, hmm. like a book or the pages worth reading, you know, or the chapters <laughs> worth reading. Right. Um, yeah. Because yeah, then, then all of a sudden it's like okay, kind of do some crazy stuff, and it actually <laughs> is interesting to tell this story, right? Yeah. Um, and it, again, it's it can be kind of a crazy way to live too, if you think about just as that. Uh, that's probably too taken a little too far. Oh, you, everything you have to do is to have some crazy, you know, life or death kind of story. No, but at the same time, yeah. you know, it may help you think about like yeah, you know, if you're telling the story down the line, yeah. um, is it interesting? Well, and I think this will this will be a good tie back to what really got you inspired about space. When I when I hear stories of Jeff Jeff Bezos, for example, um, some people will know this, some won't. He was in high school when he read um, was it the the High Frontier from oh gosh I'm forgetting his name help me um, O'Neill. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Big classic book written in the 70s describing how maybe planets aren't the best place for humans to expand. Maybe we should just build mega cities rotating in space. Mm -hmm. And little Bezos, little Jeff at the time was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do space and wrote papers and articles in the school newspaper and look at him now has a space company. And so it's, 
right? There's someone who there's probably plenty that have failed, but he had that compelling story from 16 all the way through to 50 plus now. That's a really exciting story to listen to. And it probably helped him get a bunch of investors and pitches because not only he had the fervor, but like that came through. So taking that, you know, from that story of Jeff, you, you were exposed to space early on. What was really the, the driver that said, okay, I'm, I'm a full functioning adult. I've got a wife, a little more than $500. Let me get back into the space yeah. industry. Yeah. So, you know, I don't have a traditional background as I've done engineering or what have you. Um, you know, I wouldn't draw direct parallels or anything to Jeff Bezos, you know, but you know, I did have some of the inspiration growing up, but I definitely had, I had clearly bifurcated space astronaut. You might as well want to be a professional astronaut or a professional athlete or what have you. Right. It's like yeah. few people get that. I'm not special enough or whatever. And I'm not trying to say, what was me or I was like depressed sure. or something, but you know, I, that was in its own box. Um, and so then everything else, like space and stuff, fun stuff was entertainment, uh, fic truly fiction, right? Like for that. Um, so yeah, it was like escape. It wasn't real. Hmm. So when I uh, uh, saw the Falcon Heavy launch with a Tesla on top, I was live streaming that. I would have been in Ecuador at the time. Hmm. Went back and forth between the two cities quite often, uh, between the two countries quite often. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I saw that happening and I was like, wow, like, um, this is science fiction. As far as I was concerned, mm -hmm. my brain had aligned yeah. these like booster, these boosters that were landing side by side. Qu quite honestly, like now that I learned about the technology, like the innovation technology behind it wasn't all that interesting. Like they did it. It's hard, really hard. But, you know, at the same time, they, they were able to kind of pull it together. But my brain was like, that is science fiction that is not real. Like I, it kind of broke my brain a little bit where I was saying, how can I justify what is clearly something that I would see in a sci-fi show or read in a book versus this is actually happening in front of me. Hmm. Right. And so it's was like, I, I want to be a part of that, right? That is something interesting. So this kind of drive to do impact, you know, I'm, I'm in South America yeah. thinking from this mindset of, you know, Hey, I just like threw a big wrench into my life. <laughs> uh, and I'm in South America. I actually, I found, you know, my, you know, my, yeah, I would, we would have been married maybe a, a couple of, well, a couple of years at that point, two and a half or so. And so it wasn't like regretting the move, but it, you know, from a career perspective, there was quite a wrench you throw, sure. thrown into it. So it was like, yeah. you know, I've still had that context mm -hmm. seeing that it awoken all my passion that, you know, I'd had for space as a kid. Um, and in like the possible, what was impossible seemed possible, right? Mm -hmm. Those two things kind of got, you know, jumbled up in my head. And I was like, yeah. well, I want to, I need to figure out a way to be involved. So that started me on, you know, two solid years of just how do I get involved? Mm -hmm. How do I um, be a part of this industry? What is this industry? Like I had to learn more about it. Like yeah. I just, seeing the rockets is one thing and learning about rockets or watching everyday astronaut or whatever. It's like, yep. it's a very singular view of what's going on. So hmm. I tried to learn as much as I could about the industry, about science. I would binge all sorts of stuff and, um, take it from that. This is fiction to, yeah. What's real. 
and then understand what where the business and economics lie because that was kind of a natural interest for me. For sure. Um, then look for specific opportunities uh, for myself to be involved yeah. and to find only that, like someone who comes from a marketing and growth background, not all that many opportunities hmm. in space, you know, a couple of years back, not hmm. all that many opportunities. And so I said, you know, I've got to, how can I add value? So, yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that moment really pushed me to figure that out. Okay. So, okay. So as you're, as you're wrestling through there, how do I add value uniquely to you? I, uh, cause you could have just taken a finance job making Excel spreadsheets at a space company. You had the background, you probably could do that, but is, was that your unique skill? Not so much. So as you're wrestling through there, was there a, I guess in your research, did you find, okay, here's a big problem in the space industry that I could fix, that I could help solve? Or did you come to this conclusion more so of, these are my skills, let me try to build something around it? You know, it wasn't, it, it's never so linear, right? I think it, it sounds linear coming from the past, but yeah, it was like, how can I be involved? I want to find a real way to be involved, you know? So it started, you know, my background, my, my professional background, though I had a background in finance, my professional background was mainly in marketing. And so I was looking for those kind of jobs. How do I get a job at SpaceX? Yeah. They had no marketing roles. It was like a hmm. communications role is probably the only thing they had at that point. And they're, they're very specific sort of person they're looking for. Now I'm really my skill set. Um, and, uh, you know, didn't, had no interest in the finance stuff. I learned that pretty quickly. Um, and then from there it was like just understanding the industry and, and where the opportunities lie. I was just trying to figure it out. Like I knew there was something I was going to do. Didn't know what it was. So it was just open yeah. had my mind open to the different possibilities. Um, so as I was doing that and learning about different things, you know, I dove in one of the things in my research was going and finding about the funding side of space. Sure. And that's where I learned and kind of did that initial digging. Well, well there's a lot of money, but it's heavily, heavily, heavily going to a few companies. Mm. Um, and the number of companies getting funded at early stages seems to be a lot smaller than actually exists. So I didn't, I had done all this research on space companies, so I knew there were hundreds mm -hmm. and um, thousands potentially. It depends yeah. on who you, how you define it. Um, some people take a lot of liberties and say there's 10,000. Some people yeah. are very restrictive and say there's hundreds, right? Um, if, if you count Netflix because they stream data from space, they're a space company. Yeah. I don't and, really want to count them. Yeah. And it's, but it's up for debate. Right. And right. so like, but even so I knew there's at least hundreds and you're talking potentially every year, maybe 50, maybe a hundred are getting funded at early stages in some years, maybe 150 hmm. uh, at best. I mean, in that defense on your definition as well. So, um, you know, what well, we, I just knew that there was something there. And then I started talking with founders. I had been talking with space with, you know, startup founders for a long time. So it was natural for me to have that conversation with founders. Hmm. It, I heard the same story over and over again, which was, um, yeah, I, every VC or venture or whoever I talk to says the same thing. Uh, come back to me when I, when I have revenue, but I can't get to revenue cause I need 1 million, 2 million. So mm -hmm. somewhere between one and 5 million, they always said the same thing. Okay. There's a pattern. 
Um, and, and the data bore that out. Um, and it was like, man, these, these people that are saying this seem to be the types of people that shouldn't have this problem, uh, <laughs> right? They seems real. I'm not necessarily smart enough with the technology background to know that for sure, but maybe there's something there. Um, so I was doing that now at the same time, what I was doing is an outlet for, um, you know, kind of building up this knowledge base in space was I started building the, um, the Mars walkers, Pinterest account. Yeah. So what that was, was essentially just curating content, the space related content. And at the time there was essentially less than five, even space focused accounts on Pinterest. Hmm. My wife's the one who said to go to Pinterest. I said, Oh, that's, you know, heavily dominated by women. No one will want that. Yada, yada, yada. I don't know. I had something in my head and she said, no, you should do it. So I did. Um, and at the time there was also almost no one doing video. Hmm. So what I did was make and curate, well curate and then make, um, you know, just by clipping into the right sizes, um, Pinterest optimized space videos, giving hmm. the credit to everyone. I li- sure. linked out all over the internet, right? To everyone that made them. So some of you like everyday astronaut clip sure. his stuff or, you know, the space explosion, SpaceX explosion videos, you know, clip them. Yeah. Um, so I started that in July of 2020. Hmm. Yeah. July of 2020 by November of 2020, it had 3 million unique monthly viewers. Yeah. yeah. So and Pinterest is its own thing. Like getting a lot of viewers isn't necessarily as hard as uh, getting the followers and all this other stuff, but it has its own algorithm. Still, that's a big number. Yeah. Um, so I was able to then say, okay, well, I can, I knew I could do the community side. I've done it before. Um, mm. and in, in business and marketing. So I was like, this was a proof point though, that other people could look at it. Look, that's the link. That's me, mm. you know? Um, so that helped. So I was able to say, okay, there's a community and Oh, by the way, there's this need, Hmm. You know, it's kind of a shame, kind of like embarrassed that it took that long for the light bulb to go off. Cause I think (laughs) from, even as this thing was building from July to November, I think it was until at least October before the idea, the light bulb really went off. And in fact, somewhere in between those two times, I even took this idea to someone else. (laughs) Took me a while to think I could do it. (laughs) Um, I took the idea to actually space angels group. Yeah. Um, so you should do CF because at this point in time, I hit the idea that it could be a crowd function, uh, crowdfunding mechanism as the function for this had come up, but it hadn't mm-hmm. still hadn't connected that I could be the one. So okay. somewhere in between those two times, I realized there was something there. Someone could do something about that. Yeah. And then I finally said, maybe it's me. <laughs> and then, um, pitched that around, uh, found, uh, my co-founder Brandt. Arsenal, who comes from 30 years on Wall Street. So we were both kind of going through similar paths mm-hmm. of coming out of whatever industries we were in. He was in Wall Street, so big funding kind of stuff. In fact, I think he had just closed like 30 million round or something um, for the company he was at nice. that he had co-founded. Um, but he was coming out of that, and I was you know, coming out of my thing, and we were both we'd met kind of naturally just by doing networking and stuff as people mm-hmm. new to interested in space. So we were connecting, talking for a while. And then eventually it was like, maybe I should make this happen. And that was an early 2020. Yeah. 
So maybe I've got my dates wrong. And that was all, all this stuff was happening in 2019, sorry. And then okay. in 2020 gotcha. is when we connected. Uh, so we knew each other for almost a year by the time we actually pulled the trigger because yeah. it was in May of, of 20, uh, 2020 where we actually pulled the trigger on filing the filing everything and um, getting things started and, and kind of going from there. Um, oh yeah. So it's my, I had all my dates wrong. It was 2018 when the Falcon heavy went up in 2019 okay. when we moved here just to be close to rockets. Yep. And then 2020 when we actually started the business um, yep. officially with Brandt and um, filed and all that stuff, May 6th of 2020. Okay. Gotcha. Technically when we, the incorporation happened. I think that was, I think that was the day that I graduated college. Pretty, or pretty close to it. Yeah, so, great day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, was, I was aiming for May fourth. Ah, uh, actually, I didn't think about it, but then I realized, oh, how cool! I knew it was close to that date. Yep. But May fourth, I think that year was like a Saturday. Okay. So it would be my wife ended up filing for her business and getting it incorporated, and she didn't do this on purpose either, but ended up being on. May 4th, 2021. Nice. So her and business anniversary is May the 4th, which is, you know, big for Star Wars. And May the science. 4th be with you. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> I got it. I missed it by two days and she got it right on the dot. Uh, right on the dot. So, gotcha. Yep. So, okay. So jumping into the crowdfunding aspect, um, you said there was, there was this huge need from the space founders. They don't have revenue yet, so they can't go to the VCs. They need that one to five million dollar range is individual investors like a mom and pop you know mike the plumber is that the best way to get that one a mil one million that, I mean, that seems like you have to build quite the community versus i don't know i guess alternative ways yeah i guess i'm just trying to grapple with that of yeah i mean and that's a good question so there are there are alternatives um, right. You can just do normal angel syndicate investing um, okay. or, or uh, angel syndicates as a founder. You can go to those right now. Their checks are starting to increase, actually starting probably to pull back a little bit given the current climate. But, um, you know, generally speaking, it was anywhere between a hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollar checks. And you pull a few of them together. Um, maybe it worked. Maybe it didn't. Obviously, all accredited. Sure. But even so, the check sizes are still fairly significant. Um, you can also do earlier stage venture. They do exist, and they in the just in the last two years, they've kind of exploded. Hmm. Um, and some of them are great partners, um, but still, generally, check sizes five hundred thousand uh, to a million, fewer and farther between. Still, most don't understand space, um, and in fact, with space, you have such a variety of technologies that are involved. It can be quite hard. Uh, so some are great and there's some that are out there and they, you know, they're supportive, um, and they'll write checks for early stage founders still doesn't really meet the demand. Okay. Um, you know, functionally, and I think logically it, it works quite well that using crowdfunding, uh, hmm. because what you're really doing is space is risky. It early stage you know, startups are risky. Yeah. Generally, like anything, <laughs> even software where you could build it overnight in theory and launch and see if it works. Um, you know, it's already risky. Then you have space, which is a very capital intensive and, and, and risk, risky environment and all sorts of things can happen. And you have what is most most cases a hardware 
environment that lives in space. So hardware yeah. has a whole new timeline rest to it because it normally takes a few months just to build something, much less uh, get it tested and then put on a rocket and up in space. Sure. Those timelines are reducing, but still, still pretty long compared to a software mm-hmm. kind of play. So all of that in mind, high, high risk. Yeah. Uh, and you would assume that it's higher even than most venture portfolio uh, risk, which is, you know, one in 10, one in 20 mm-hmm. kind of um, risk where they hope they win one. So, you know, in theory, this is even worse than that. One in 20, if you're lucky, um, can be one. So with that in mind, one of the best ways to handle that risk is to reduce check size, right? Because if you're doing uh, one in 20 and you're writing a million dollar check, you would need $20 million and hope, you know, you do that right. right. Um, If you're writing $100,000 checks, you would need, you know, quite a few, you need $2 million to prove that out. And it's still a lot of risk. And again, your, your whole livelihood mm-hmm. can be dependent on just a handful of checks that you're writing. Right? Yeah. So you got to be a little bit more selective. You have to have different criteria. Um, often cases, it could just be, you know, a lot of the companies that do get founded tend to have a very interesting story or that like someone comes out of a big, you know, SpaceX or what have you. So yeah. there's a lot of other people that are doing really good work. So I would say that the vast majority of opportunities are just being kind of thrown to the wayside. Hmm. Um, and, and, and they may just say, oh, it's because it's not good enough or what have you. I mean, the, the reality is the risk reward ratio isn't set correctly. Okay. Right. And so when you start to reduce check sizes down to as little as a hundred or a thousand dollars, that's something that anyone individually can risk. Most people can risk that for the opportunity for, you know, a big gain. Mm-hmm. So when you start to aggregate that together, it matters more. Um, one of the limiting factors is a regulatory limiting factor. Why, mm-hmm. why angel groups don't do that? Um, well, it's regulatory and market size limiting, right? Okay. There's limits that were a hundred people max in an SPV, which is a fun, uh, you know, special purpose vehicles, what they use to aggregate people together into as one. Gotcha. Um, so that was a limiting factor for them. Yeah. Now it's 250. Even so, your check sizes still need to be pretty sizable. Start doing legal stuff around it. Um, so if you can have thought process being, if you can get check sizes as low as 100 or 500 or a thousand dollars into a company, you can aggregate those in a limitless way together. Hmm. What kind of power can you have with that? Yeah. Right. So uh, that's where then all of a sudden individually, those risks are easy. And the risk reward is much easier. You can, gotcha. you can throw, you know, throw a hundred bucks and be okay to lose it yeah. if it does go in the in the likely chance that it goes under, yeah. just because that's the way the risks work out. But if you if you do make it big, it's it's a nice little check for the the amount of risk you put out there. But together, you're still risking as a group a million mm-hmm. or five million dollars, right? So now all of a sudden the risks and the rewards start to balance out. Yeah. Um, you know, individual risk. Still, the group risk is still high, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a nice logical mechanism to uh, to balance out the risk and reward, and then to also, you know, give innovate you know, innovators a shot at early stages. Yeah. Okay. That's. Thank you for that. I, I needed that that thesis of how the collective, in that sense, is a really good addition. Um, so I guess the the problem you guys are probably encountering in the beginning is hundred dollar check sizes 
we only have a thousand investors mm-hmm. or whatever. And you're trying to just build that community aspect. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm curious besides just, you know, distributing the, the, the love, the risk to mm-hmm. all these different people. Um, yeah. What's really the goal there of the, the community aspect yeah. of building that up? Yeah. So um, in, in something that to answer the question you said before as well, there, there's more than the risk and reward thing is, is, is kind of the logical function behind it. But also when you have a thousand or 5,000 or 500 backers that are actually invested in you, yeah. uh, it, there's a different scale of potential options, right? When it comes to tapping a network. So one of the things that we're really trying to build we're focused on building. It's not just the world's largest community of space investors because it's just easier to say that than what we, the deeper thing we want to build, right? right. What we really want to build is, um, you know, the smartest capital a space investor can, can find. Hmm. What does that mean? So, you know, we target and look for a lot of our investors to come from the space industry. Um, the industry, you know, with engineers and, you know, technical backgrounds. You also have a lot of folks that are from the finance world and things like that. People that can add value to mm-hmm. the founder. So that's what we really are we're trying to find. At scale, that's a very powerful mechanism. Yeah. Because then you as a founder can say, hey, I'm looking for a contact at XYZ company. Anyone out there? No. If you're asking 500 people, yeah. in theory, the chances are quite a bit higher. Um, so yeah, it's really what we try and do. Obviously, you know, are all 500 people going to be watching at your beck and call? No, no. You know, so there is a money aspect, right? Get some money in the door, right? In early stages, it's way more important than at later stages. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, getting that network, spreading the story is, is incredible value to founders. So, you know, one of the founders who was actually one of the first one on our platform, they said, you know, when we first started, we had to do all the sales calls and call out, talk to people after this. And they didn't even raise, they didn't raise 2 million or anything yet on the platform. Um, the community still growing and raising significant amounts of money, but not what we want it to be. You know, sure. 5 million every single time is what we want. Right. Um, but um, what we would like to see, er, but you know, what they saw even with the, with a few hundred investors, yeah. now they have inbound coming into them. Now nice. they're, now they're fielding calls for their technology and able to yeah. work on projects that way. So, you know, okay. is that going to work for everyone the same way all the time? Not necessarily, but at the same time, it's, it's a great way to get yourself out there, put yourself in the large group of people, mm-hmm. a lot of people from the industry that are looking and interested and want to, you know, use your product yeah. down the line. Well, and I also see it as <laughs> let's let the engineers do what they're good at. Yeah. Thank <laughs> You don't need to be spending 80% yeah. of your time raising money. Yeah. You're not, if you do that, you're not going to be able to build the epic machinery. Yeah. <laughs> Go build the stuff yeah. and we'll film it and we'll tell a bunch of people about it. And it, it gets back to the, the whole thousand true fans yeah. uh, sort of mindset. If you got those guys on all your social medias, that's what SpaceX, I think, has done an incredible yeah. job of. They have fans. Yeah that have never ridden on a rocket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, VCs often have to pitch value because there's money, right? You come talk to the venture capitalists because they have money, but they often have to pitch value because now there's quite a bit of money to be had out there. Hmm. Um, and so the once, and it, 
if you go and like look at some of the venture groups that are out there, what you'll find is that the ones that actually care and provide value stand out a lot hmm. because the vast majority don't. And, and, and quite frankly, it makes sense. You know, can you field calls from everyone you've ever invested in and, um, you know, help them find a company or help them whatever? No, the reality is most people don't have that much time all the time to be doing that. So yeah, when, when it comes down to something like that, when you have more people, Mm-hmm. more different schedules to potentially take advantage of and all that. It makes a lot more sense for, you know, any one of those people in the crowd, especially if we can get the, that crowd of people to be heavily from the aerospace industry and in the companies that you want to go have conversations with and all that yeah. stuff, you know, it makes a lot of sense for that to be, you know, one of your best sources of actual value add, whether that's finding an engineer, whether that's finding your cust- the, uh, a connection to the customer you're looking to get or what have you. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I guess that sort of, <laughs> I think segments into another thing that's been on my mind for a while, which is the idea of the, the blue ocean of space of it's right now it's, it's like California before the gold rush got, you know, bloody. There's a lot of opportunity out there. There's a lot of potential collaboration. Mm-hmm. Within the U.S. and and some of the other democratic space countries out there, we have a lot of entrepreneurial spirits, as evidenced by this entire conversation. But what we don't have is a unified 50-year plan for the country, governmental and private Mm sector-wise. China does, and they've been implementing it for three or four years, and... They are catching up rapidly. So I guess I'm I'm curious, probably A, on do, do you see a value in broad U.S. governmental unification in some way, shape, or form? Um, and, and going into that a bit deeper, like what role can these different companies act? Like how can they actually collaborate instead of just putting that on their, their PR page and then sorry, this is proprietary information. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about, you know, uh, the government and having plans and things like that, I mean, the way I view one of the key values uh, of the government is to really push much further, right? Like really push the envelope into things that require all sorts of deep exploration. Cause you can, you can amass budgets and the best minds to, to push that envelope. Um, you know, you could argue that the focus has been in, you know, near earth orbit for a while, mm-hmm. um, which really, you know, kind of focus, it kind of, you know, blunted, uh, our, or stunted, I guess I should say our growth potentially. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, what you're starting to see now is I think NASA and other government agencies starting to take their kind of their hand off the control knob of low earth orbit and, or, you know, earth orbit and letting, companies come in and innovate and do what they do in, in government or in commercially run kind of, um, economies, but they can start to shift more towards things that are further out, like Artemis programs and things like that. Mm-hmm. So one of the, I do think that's helpful. Uh, and I do think that helps to kind of like focus that having said that, you know, there's a significant movement towards decentralization in general that I, I don't think it's like you have to have one person or one small group calling the shots for any kind of innovation to happen. Now, getting a lot of people together, um, 
there's been some really interesting things that have happened because of, you know, decentralized web three shot calling, right? Like yeah. DAOs are coming together and deciding in a large groups to say, Hey, we're going to go buy the U S constitution. And they pulled together, I don't know, 30 or something million dollars to go do that. And like one guy with a lot of money just outbid them just to say, you know, Oh, I'm better. I'm smarter or whatever than, you know, than, than the crowd. But the reality is, is the crowd stepping up. Yeah. And I'm not trying to pull this back to crowdfunding. I'm just okay. saying you can in scale yeah. figure out ways, even though you're decentralized to bring things together intelligently and mm-hmm. still accomplish quite a bit. Having said that, yeah, there's definitely a head start kind of advantage. Someone like a China has where it's a few people calling the shots and you know, yeah. we're, you know, you're just organizing it that way. Um, so I, I think, I think they can coexist, right. With the, uh, with the entity that we have with in place with the government right now with NASA and what's really cool about space force is that hmm. now you've one way of looking at it is you kind of doubled while there's two different mentalities. One's more science and exploration and one's more, you know, defense, mm-hmm. but you've doubled dedicated funding towards space space yeah. technology and things like that and innovation in space. So that's what I like to see because it's kind of taking it seriously. Um, so I do think, you know, one of the downsides we have in the way things are set up is that we tend to have like changes in our priorities. Yep. This is always a problem. That's, but you know, are we going to then all of a sudden just, I mean, that would take some massive shifts in the way we think about organizations and governments and how we, how NASA gets their orders and all this other stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure that we're necessarily, you know, going to do that. Maybe we can, maybe we could hmm. um, detach things from, you know, a four year cycle somehow. Uh, but then that puts a lot of pressure on making the right call just now and, and hoping it's the right thing in the future. Who knows if that's the right thing. So, you know, I think there's pros and cons to any kind of democracy versus communism versus uh decentralized versus heavily centralized. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I want to count that out. Right. I think, I think it's going to be the human drive that really pushes that forward. So hmm. there's are there are tools and mechanisms in place with web three and others to allow for many people, millions to come together and decide one thing is a good point, uh, important goal. Yeah. And by the way, you can also set these structures up so that they don't allow for changes all the time. And if you get enough people together internationally hmm. to make that decision, yeah, you know, it's, we'll, we'll reevaluate this every so many years, but this is its goal and this is what they're going to do. And yeah. that doesn't change. And we, we agreed on it now. Right. Um, so there's ways of, of doing things like that. So I, yeah. Yeah. That's the whole DAO and web three. It's so new and I've, there's so much mm-hmm. to learn about web three and I've exposed myself to NFTs and was like, all right, 95% of these are going to be, you know, 2001 tech companies that pop. There'll be a few that are great. Yeah. I don't even know if I want to invest in those even. Yeah. You know, whatever. That's not my cup of tea. Um, started learning more about just the decentralized nature, the DAOs and that kind of stuff. Going into the, the company company collaboration. One of the things yeah. we've seen in the space industry is, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> and so people start off with a niche idea and sometimes they're successful and then mergers and acquisitions take place. The The one that first comes to mind is Redwire. 
Um, they now have, I think it's nine different small space subsidiaries within them. Mm-hmm. Satellite manufacturer, satellite maintenance, uh, data processor, manufacturing in space, and a couple others that I can't remember. And so, you know, they're collaborating by becoming one. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm curious with your exposure to Web3 and just a lot more of the actual founders down here on the coast. Yeah. Is there, do you, do you see a potential of, you know, let's call it a, we use a, a Star Wars analogy earlier, let's use a Star Trek, a federation mm. of different US space companies. We're like, hey, we're, we're individual, but, but we are making a doubt. We're making the decision that, hey, we all want to do this sort of trajectory for the next 20 years. Let's see how we can help each other. Yeah, there's there's definitely plenty of, of opportunities, and uh, you know, so like you mentioned, Redwire Voyager is doing something similar. Voyager Space Holdings, mm-hmm. um, Dylan um, doing really cool stuff over there. Similarly, um, and you have groups like uh, Foundation for the Future and others that are organizing together and saying, "Hey, we care about you know something that you know we should get infrastructure funding." Yeah for building actual space infrastructure. Um, you know, whether that's a, you know, space elevator or something crazy, you know, well, I say crazy, there's some people that think it's, it's actually here and you know, I'm really can't say that it's not. Um, but, um, Hmm. so regardless, like that kind of stuff, there's definitely opportunities to do that kind of thing. I think what you're seeing economically in general though, is, um, you know, it was very important for a company like SpaceX uh, and, and Planet even said this, like vertically integrate, right? We need to yeah. we need to own all the parts of the value chain so that we can build everything in house and we can build and break and move faster. Yeah. Um, I think that is something that will change. I don't, I can't say exactly how soon it will, um, but I think it's something that will change because what you have is, you know, a lot of more startups who have that mentality. So SpaceX, I mean, they're a 20 year old company, right? So yeah. they had to have that mentality because all the people that would, would have been providers for them for some kind of, I don't know, uh, uh, some kind of nut or wrench or whatever sure. could delay their timelines. It could take 20, you know, 20 yeah. months to give me this tank or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, so they try and offload as, take as little of that risk as possible. Nowadays, what you see is a lot more opportunity for kind of horizontal sort of opportunities where you can actually do more off the shelf sort of building. And, and it's mm. not there yet. Like most satellites are kind of built bespoke. Um, they yeah. may have like a CubeSat frame or something, but they're start, you know, it's still hard to get off the shelf stuff. There's definitely off the shelf providers, but you get to big people with very specific goals and they kind of want their own thing. Mm-hmm. So at some point that that shifts over and the whole, you know, thing becomes quite integrated and you can pull an off the shelf component. I mean, no one, you know, people that are building laptops in many cases aren't fully vertically integrated. You know, Apple did this big move to their own thing recently, but yeah. you know, there's a lot of good examples of, you know, horizontal uh, sort of alignment and non-vertical integration either can work, but I think essentially my point here is as that economy develops, I think you're going to see that naturally happen because there's incentives, economic incentives to not (laughs) just be your own thing. And, 
you know, hide your IP from everyone or whatever yeah. is to open source things and work together on certain things. And, um, you know, bring this tank with this propulsion engine, uh, because you know, it's all readily available and standardized. Mm-hmm. Once you start standardizing things, a lot easier to work together. So I think that'll naturally happen okay. um, as well. Yeah. So I guess one thing that pops up there is, um, yeah, you said you've big fan of, you know, his, history books, looking at, you know, past founders and such. Um, love me some audible and the, the Carnegie biography is probably one of my go-tos. Um, the book itself is, you know, 900 pages or something insane, but it's 36 hours on audible. No big deal. Um, but one of the things that those guys just dogmatically did was they vertically integrated everything that they possibly could the coal the, the yeah the coal ovens the coal mines the the coke ovens that would then refine it to make the steel the rail yep. everything and it allowed carnegie and then eventually u.s steel to balloon into this behemoth that then offered it steel at the lowest possible price that was that was their whole thesis was mm-hmm. we want to make this commodity so cheap that there's brand new use cases for it. Yeah. To me, that's that's something that SpaceX and others could easily do. Yeah. Right. Rocket doesn't really feel like a commodity at this point, but you know, a, a ninety-seven dollar flight on Spirit Airlines that kind of is. Mm-hmm. And so, as those economies change, I guess I'm curious with the introduction of this Web three, the decentralized sort of stuff. You think that's really what's changing that dynamic and the old model doesn't work or is there still pieces? No, it's just, you know, but just like in, just like the Carnegie's, then you've got the, uh, the other examples of horizontal integration that worked really well too. Um, well, as far as for monopolies are concerned, if mm-hmm. you want to say work really well there. Um, you know, I, I think that has very little to do with, um, with, um, yeah, I think that has very little to do with web three and a lot more to do with, um, just the natural economy as it's developing, right? Like there's more opportunities where vertical integration matters so much more now than it will in 10 years or what have you. Um, So there's different business strategies, of course. Yeah. Right. So you can take any strategy really, uh, and hopefully, hopefully it works out. Right. Um, but I think it's, I guess my, my point is it was so important for over the last 20 years because of the way the supply chains were, yeah. Right. In space and still are in, in many cases. Um, and, and, you know, founders, some founders will probably disagree with me right now, but there's many founders that I know that are talking right now. They're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm building everything myself, but I had no intentions to do that long term. Hmm. I intend to own this layer of the thing I'm building. Gotcha. <laughs> so that's the thing I'm worried about. Yeah. Um, at some point I'll buy this component and that component from someone else. Right now, no one builds them for me. Or the people that do are out of whack on timelines. And, you know, so there are people mm-hmm. that are literally vertically integrating out just so that they can have what they want. And then, if, but they would gladly offload it gotcha. um, down the line. We're shifting and growing, right? That whole supply chain and ecosystem is being built out. Once those exist for, you know, easier founders, once there's a lot of off the shelf components for making lives, you know, founders' lives easier, just to, work off of this stack. Um, 
that would be the way that it's done. But, you know, think about it right now, like in the internet industry, if you're building a technology, we built a FinTech platform, so to speak. If uh, we didn't go buy the server racks and build it in a, in a, you know, in a closet somewhere. Right. We use AWS and, or, you know, you can pick whoever you want, right? You can use whoever you want to put your software on that and let them do that. And someone else supplies the, uh, the actual hardware and AWS, AWS manages it or whatever. They provide middlewares. And so that is what a more robust economy looks like. A less robust economy looks like back when, you know, internet was first being, (laughs) you know, run up. Everyone had, you had to have a server in your closet, in a, in a room, in your office. And then you started to, you know, buy a little bit of space, but you still had your own rack, but hmm. in someone else's office. And then you move to, you know, okay, I'll just buy space, uh, buy the time <laughs> on someone else's servers. Right. So how does that evolve over time in hardware in software and in, in space in general, right? These are fairly natural economic evolutions. Mm-hmm. There'll always be people that vertically integrate. And think that's the only way to do it. Um, but I think there's, I guess my point is there's just more room for options and there's more ability for people to kind of coexist in a, in a, in a interdependent ecosystem, yeah. the way we're all interdependent in the, in the FinTech world or whatever on other companies, right? They're doing big things. So I think there's ways for us to, you know, think beyond that little kind of bubble of, well, I have to build this one thing, everything from, you know, mm-hmm. all the way from the bottom to the top and, it's the only way it'll work. Um, I think in SpaceX case, it worked perfectly in several others. It will work well. Um, and then there's still others where it might work, uh, but it might <laughs> take, you know, you might die before you ever get to really do what you want to see happen in the full yeah. vertical integration. Okay. That's yeah. That's a good framework for me of, yeah. you might, you might need to vertically integrate in the very beginning just so that you don't have five years of time delay. Yeah. And it's then, like a necessity rather than a, rather than a real strategy. It's right. like, okay, we'll do this now. And everyone's, you kind of have to have a go to market. Yeah. Um, sometimes there's a go to market around your building. Sometimes there's a go to market around your actual marketing strategy and who you're selling to and all that. Yeah. Hmm. So, okay. As, as the industry progresses, let's say over the next 20 years, have, has there been some technologies just in the, you know, since 2020, uh, when Space Ventures was really getting up there, have there been some technologies that either you've been exposed to or that have actually become deal flows that you see the potential of this tech to do one of those exponen- exponential hockey curves? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a few that kind of come to mind, I think, that are on, you know, on the precipice of, of something interesting. I mean, I'm going to talk more generally. Sure. <clears throat> So, um, I think when you think of, so it's really like a market that's evolved in the last two years is, um, orbital servicing assembly and manufacturing. Oh, Sam. Okay. Right. I mean, there's been companies doing stuff or trying to do stuff. So like, you know, made in space now part of Redwire, mm-hmm. Um, but it's all been very relatively small and specific. Um, but it's starting to become more of a thing now to the point where now you see, Space Force and everyone doing like a cyber around it and all this sort of stuff. Now, yeah. now in the last year, you've seen the uh, announcement of three, is it three or four commercial, commercially privately owned space stations? Oh, 
mm-hmm. um, them existing, that the, the mere fact that they will exist yeah. means you need a servicing ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? So like now you've got people worried about space debris, astroscale and yeah. others. Now you got people worried about refueling on orbit, orbit mm-hmm. fab and others. Um, this is becoming more of a natural conversation and it will be its own mini economy uh, yeah. up there where it, you may have stuff that exists and was maybe launched from here to exist in orbit, but all of the fi- transactions, the financial mm-hmm. ones are probably happening on earth, but all the <laughs> physical transactions are happening up in space where you don't really do anything. It's like, I own something up there. You own something up there. Let's interact and do our business and move on. Yeah. But we never really did anything down here. Right. Um, that's happening. And it's, it's, there's quite a bit of opportunities. You got companies that just provide, you know, machine vision solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Like watching uh, space uh, situational awareness using, you know, machine vision to help with that. Okay. Um, yeah, people that are doing like providing just the space situational awareness individually uh, as a service or as like an actual component you can buy. Um, that's something that we don't need as much in an orbit, in a thing where there's no real OSAM kind of market, right? Um, so it just keeps, that's a building market and there's a lot of opportunities there, but you can think of like all these different services that exist in a robust orbital ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, if you want to dive in a little bit deeper, something that's interesting to me and who knows, I maybe I'm, I don't, not many people talk about it. So I guess it's a risk, uh, but it's, you know, hybrid rocket engines. Okay. So, huh. That's, this is like hyper-focused, right? Because it's in propulsion. It's like a subset of, yeah. of propulsion. And so um, what's interesting about hybrids is that, like, you know, they're super, they can be super easy to manufacture. Sorry. They can be super easy to manufacture. Okay. So um, there's an interesting thing there because, as you know, Elon and others have stated the hardest thing about, you know, what they're building is, is manufacturing lines, scaling that up. Yeah. Um, the technology, while it's, it's itself hard and not that easy, rocket science, <laughs> it being rocket science, getting it to something you can rebuild many, many, many times is the real difficult piece. So if you get something that starts simple, which hybrid rocket engines are quite simple. Which, yeah, before digging into that, from myself and maybe some other guys mm-hmm. out there, define hybrid uh, so, rocket engines. So a hybrid rocket engine is um, a hybrid of... Uh, liquid and solid propulsion. So you have solid propulsion, which is essentially think of it like the boosters on the space shuttle or uh, a firework, right? right. You light yep. it and it goes up and you don't know where it's going to go. Hopefully you're pointing it in the right direction. And then um, the liquid are two different liquid controls. So it's Raptor engines. Uh, all the major engines you're used to seeing um, also on the shuttle, you know, mm-hmm. the, are they RS-25s? Uh, I always get my... My not my RSRLs uh, confused. One of, one of those is the Russian yeah. one. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the uh, I, I, yeah, it's the beautiful, uh, massively complex uh, hydrogen engine that was on the space shuttles. Um, awesome, but very complex, right? Yeah. Um, and all liquid, so liquid mm-hmm. oxidizer and liquid propellant, and you mix them and they blow up and right. Okay, so it's essentially a rocket engine. A hybrid is. Um, a solid propellant, so some kind of fuel of some kind, you know, 
a lot of times it's some essentially kind of like a plastic. You can think mm. of it as like a solid that way and then a liquid ox oxidizer. So they shoot, it's got a hole in it normally in the middle and you shoot oxygen, mm -hmm. liquid oxygen or whatever your oxidizer is through the middle. So you can control it, you can spray more or less. Uh, but essentially your entire combustion chamber is um, a, a, a cast fuel. Yeah. So you're exploding in the middle of it and shooting down the end and it burns out kind of like this, okay. um, you know, like from the center to the outside. Yeah. So they've had problems for a long time. Hmm. You know, this isn't perfect. This has been around for a long time. Uh, they have efficiency issues. So, you know, getting to orbit, no one's gone orbital with a hybrid rocket engine. So my fundamental high level belief is that once that happens, which there are at least four companies getting close to that, like very close. Like I think within six to 18 months, you'll see one of these happen. Wow. Then all of a sudden it will really blow up as a use case for propulsion innovation because it, it, there's already people looking at it and, and Virgin Galactic has a hybrid. So, okay. You know, but going orbital still is a hard thing because you can't get perfect efficiency and all this other stuff. Like you can, you can fine tune that with, with liquid. Yeah. But once you get to good enough, which you right. know, SpaceX and others are really good at proving good enough can take you a long way. Mm -hmm. Um, but once you get to good enough, then, um, and go orbital with it, the, the benefits of a hybrid are crazy because like the most complex hybrid I've seen, and I'm, I'm not a rocket scientist, so sure. grain of salt, but it's like got 10 moving pieces. Sheesh. Okay. It's nothing. And a, you know, a Raptor engine is like a hundred moving pieces just in the turbo pump, you know? So like, many orders of magnitude increase in complexity with one versus the other. So if you start with something much simpler, manufacturing that's much easier. Yeah. Back to the point of something that's very easy to manufacture is now something quite powerful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, you know, I've got, we've got, I know one group that's doing one that is one moving piece and can be 3d printed and an orbital class rocket can be 10, 3d printed for $10,000. So, Whoa imagine a world where, and that's not even where they're really improving on, you know, the fuel, so the fuels can be improved upon and are being improved upon to help with efficiency. There's all sorts of things there to, to improve upon. It's not fundamentally like a physics problem. It's just refinement engineering and uh, chemistry with yeah. the, with the fuels themselves, chemistry, casting and 3d printing of fuels is happening. Um, yeah. They're 3d printing the fuels in a perfect, uh. you know, alignment so they can get a better, know, burn and more equal burn and all sure. this stuff. Um, so there are very smart people working on that. You know, my fundamental belief is that probably in this next six to 18 months, an interesting kind of paradigm shifter will happen where one or two or three will go orbital. And then it's going to force people to think about if I can, if I can go orbital with something that cheap and that easy to make at scale, yeah. why am I building Raptor engines with, thousands of moving pieces or hundreds of moving pieces. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, still reasons to do it. Right. And, but it will be far less of a throwaway. Yeah. So there's other reasons for it too. The real reasons those things are improving. Hybrids are improving. It's because of, um, hypersonics like missiles and defense. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. As well as yeah. hypersonic planes and things like that. That's the real reason they're doing it because they, they can get, um, like the efficiency they need, but it's essentially a throwaway. Right. So it's yeah. designed to be that way. So it can be quite powerful that way. Um, so that's one of the reasons there you see 
investment being done in R&D. It's not like someone's just hoping and toiling away to make a launch company someday. But you can imagine if you have something like that, potentially you can, with that rocket technology, you can build a nice launch company on top of it mm-hmm. or just be a supplier to launch companies or what have you. There's a lot of potential reasons gotcha. for it to be interesting. Not many people talk about it. I think it was kind of interesting a, few, a while ago and not anymore. And you know, some people try and kind of like kill it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. To me, it's like you know, if there are this many people, really smart companies working on it and getting yeah. this close, I think, you know, if, if, if you see that go orbital, it makes a lot of people wonder why not. Yeah. Um, cause then that's a fundamental, you know, shift in the way that, you know, rocket engines are what, like 90% of the cost of a rocket in general, if you can then be, make that very easy to mass produce, hmm. it actually in theory will even start to make do we ha- actually have to worry about reusability at least for a little bit? And then it'll come back to both, right? You want to be reusable sure. in general, but then all of a sudden the costs become a lot more interesting there. Then we'll worry about space elevators and something someday <laughs> for, for that to really drop the cost down. So, so couple, couple questions there. Sure. Um, one, you said there's three or four companies in that. Are those, are those guys still skunk works? Their names aren't, allowed to be known or no there's companies um the ones that i'm following and aware of and there's probably a few others that i'm not thinking of but um there's uh firehawk they just raised a series a uh i think raytheon uh, i'm firehawk aerospace is one okay there's a company via space who's down the road here yeah um there's a company um in canada called um reaction dynamics and they have a good relationship with the Canadian space agency. I think CSA just said something about using them for their launching, um, in the, you know, in like, that's one of their primary primary providers. Um, so that's a good relationship for them to have. And then there's a company called equatorial space systems as well. Um, that's come out of a long history of rock hybrid rocket engines and some really smart people there. Um, they're going through tech stars right now, I think. Oh, nice. um, so, it, yeah, you know, not, none of these people that are like just sitting in the in a garage or something yeah. with an idea. I mean, it's real companies putting real money behind it who I've seen their technology, you know, in, in <laughs> first person in some cases. Nice. Um, it's just a matter of time. So, like, the hypersonics is a real driver for... Yeah. you know, the early investment. So like, I'm, I, I don't know this, so don't quote me or anything on that, but I'm pretty sure that Raytheon probably invested in them for the hypersonics missiles applications Sure. for Firehawk. So, so just to, to put those pieces together, right? There's a, there's an international threat of hypersonic missiles already being developed. We may or may not even be able to shoot those down if mm-hmm. they were to come our way. So a ton of money going into hypersonic planes, um, boom and, uh, Hermes Mm -hmm. is the other one. And then also into the rockets to try to find a way to intercept Mm -hmm. those missiles. And if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, it's sort of similar to the, uh, the, the Mercury program, Yeah. right? We had a big rocket for the sake of being an actual rocket or missile. And we're just swapping out the payloads. Yeah. I mean, if you know, this could be very similar to the the Apollo 
the, 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 the space program originally, right? Where yeah. really was some kind of military concern. Um, and we just happened to have a cool offshoot of, you know, space exploration that came out of it. This could be one of those, um, hmm. dual use, really funded heavily for efficiency and things like that to improve it based off a kind of a hypersonic application. But a lot of these guys that are building these, they're like thinking of it, they're, they're space nuts and they're trying to make a launcher out of it or what have you. So they get funded for dual use. Um, and then they think, okay, how can I, you know, turn this into something that's more meaningful for launching and things like that. Gotcha. So it just really wouldn't surprise me that, um, the next, like I, I said, you know, six to 18 months. Yeah. Don't hold me to it, but you know, <laughs> over the next, you know, in the next one to three years, big things happen there. Yeah. And I think it will make people pay attention. So that's just, that's like the exploding propulsion side of things. That's interesting to me. I think I'm one of the only people pushing. That. I mean, I'm not the only one that's talked about this. It's been around for you know years, maybe 40 years. I don't even know hmm. as long as people have been thinking about rockets really. Um, but it's not, you know, I just think it's kind of been put into the back corner, yeah. uh, collecting dust as an idea that nothing will happen. But there have been people who've been working on it this whole time and who I think it may be close to being ready to really take center stage. Um, and there are people that, use, like I said, you know, hybrids have been used in different applications, but it, it as a fundamental technology shifter to kind of create a paradigm shift in the way rockets, space launch is done, the way that mm-hmm. hypersonics is done. I think we're getting pretty close gotcha. to that. And probably one of those elements is just the advancement of 3D printing, right? If the if mm-hmm. figuring out how the fuel is going to burn is a major piece, yeah. and now I can perfectly lay my solid fuel, yeah. that's one less variable. Well, there's a company here, here in uh, you know Melbourne, uh, that work. You know, some of them work here out of this facility actually hmm. that does rocket fuel. They have a pretty large contract. What, what they're doing is it's roughly nanotechnology that allows for the actual chemical makeup of the fuel to line up better for fuel efficiency. Wow. So uh, that's a company that is, so even 3D printing and making it more, the fuel grain more efficient, that's one thing. If you can make the fuel molecularly inside of that fuel grain burn more efficiently to the point where they can essentially line up aluminum molecules to where they can almost burn clean, huh. which is kind of, you know, I didn't even think of aluminum as a, as a, as a source for fuel, but you know, they can create drop-ins like propellant. You think of like putting something in your tank to get more fuel efficiency or whatever, yeah. right? They can essentially do the same thing with much more robust, um, you know, rocket fuels. So that's another good example of a dual use technology that they really want that for, uh, you know, hypersonics, sure, yeah, fuels. Yeah. Um, military's got large contracts coming their way. They can't build. They can't make this fuel fast enough, hmm. right? Um, so they can use that. You can use that in uh, in a world where hybrid rocket engines become viable as an orbital source of propulsion. Yeah. Um, now all of a sudden, that fuel becomes even more important because, this, if, as we know, efficiencies problems with hybrids. They're finally getting into orbit. If you can optimize that efficiency as much as 40% increase in efficiency off of, you know, just making the fuel just so, then all of a sudden this already cheap and easy to manufacture propulsion engine Mm -hmm. now has increased in better efficiency when you're already okay with good enough. 
Now all of a sudden it's like, yeah. okay, now it's really, really interesting. I, I think one of the biggest ahas I'm getting from this is, or questions I have is, is the tyranny of the rocket equation, is that antiquated? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, well then it's there you still, go. It's still there. Um, it's just, um, it's just that th this is a, you know, a propulsion technology that is getting up to the efficiency that needs to get up to, to the point where now it's just going to be easier. Uh, tyranny of rock equation is still a thing, right? It's still, yeah. still there. We're just re refining and optimizing our ways to get around it. And there's, you know, aerospike's another way to create sure. efficiencies. Mm -hmm. um, I, my personal take on that is like, I think you commented on a LinkedIn post about one. Yeah, you saw the, you saw the cross section of that thing, right? Mm -hmm. Beautiful, but yeah. it looked like it needed an AI to generate that. Yep, right. Like that. That's how. That's that is complexity. Mm -hmm. So at some point, maybe it's very easy to make that with advanced manufacturing. But there's increases in complexity for an aerospike. So what I like, the exact opposite of a hybrid is the yeah. decreases in complexity that are being done to be able to get to the same good enough. Um, so that's why I think it's probably the first thing that really starts to, from a propulsion rocket propulsion sort of innovation, I think that's the first thing that takes over. Then maybe aerospike, you need to combine those two. If you can really get a perfect aerospike with all of the worries about thermal management that come along with it, yeah, then that's another layer of efficiency. But see what we're talking about is we're talking about optimization on optimization. Yeah. Right. Um, the rocket equation is still fair enough, <laughs> pretty pretty dominating there yeah. you're just optimizing you know small percentages to really get a little bit better and a little bit better fair when it when efficiency if, if the perfect efficiency is 90 percent or whatever and for the past 60 years we've been an efficiency of 30 yeah 50 60 percent efficiency looks like magic yeah it can yeah it can but you're st yeah you're still fundamentally you know held down by things like you know how much fuel can you take up to get as far as you want to? So I think we'll probably still have, until we get something crazy like massively large infrastructures, like skyhooks, like uh, like space elevators, or whatever things that can could be created, right? Until mm -hmm. we get to that level, um, we're probably going to have specialization like of hmm. rockets that are getting you off planet into low Earth orbit, and then things that are moving from low Earth orbit to beyond, right? Yeah. So there's last mile delivery. There's different things that are, you know, set up for propulsion to take you from, that are really not designed to get you off planet, but are designed yeah. to work really well when you're in space. Yeah. There's all sorts of cool new technology coming up on that. Um, Just yeah, like very tugboats? interesting from like Leo to Geo kind of tugboat, or yeah, those those exist uh, based on electric propulsion i'm talking about new propulsion stuff that's very interesting in orbit okay like fusion based like mm. yes yeah very cool coming right out of them and this is early but it's coming right out of institutions like huh coming out of academia off of cutting edge research so this is the this is by the way the benefit of early stage in, in innovation and, yeah. and and venture because when you start doing that you know when there's a source for that, you can start having people that are thinking about taking stuff from a lab. Yeah. How can I take that, this thing that I just figured out in a lab and I can scale it up. If you have enough money mm -hmm. that's sitting there, that's interested and patient, interested in taking the risk and patient enough to wait for it. Yeah. Because this, that's one of the other problems with venture is that 
um, there's risk involved, but there's also timeline risk. And a lot of this, I need to make money within seven years. Yeah. And that's a hard, and we're always going to have that with space mainly because there's a, there's a big distance gap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the further you go from earth to the moon, whatever, it just takes longer timelines get longer, um, until we have, you know, massive innovation and propulsion to get people to Mars faster, mm-hmm. like the minimum just to put something on Mars to test it would be, you know, a year or it could be two years or three years, depending on, you know, where they are in orbit. Yeah. It could be a few months at best. So like, you're not like testing and iterating on cool stuff on earth and putting it at Mars to see what happens. Right. Even in that world where we're on Mars already. Right. Yeah. Okay. So there's always going to be some of these, this requirement for patient capital. Right. That can tolerate not only long-term, but also immediate risk. So that's why I like this idea. Let's early stage one to $5 million, bring lots of people together with small checks yeah. and we're prov- we're already proving it's working. It's just, we don't, we aren't raising a $5 million yet. Right. It's going to happen. Yeah. You, know, you just need more people. I'm bullish that it's going to happen in, you know, you know, months, not years, Love to see um, it. but it'll happen. And when it does, it'll just, you know, be get more innovation. There's more, you know, liquidity for more innovation, better minds are going to come out and say, okay, we just did this in a lab. Now let's make it something. Um, So, yeah, but I mean, I'm telling you that propulsion, really interesting. I can think of three right now. I think they're all in stealth and quiet, so I can't say anything about them, but uh, two of them are just coming out and one of them is coming from like an absolute leader um, in the industry who worked, who came out of SpaceX to build the Raptor engine. So, yeah, those are interesting yeah. things that are just coming out and that sort of stuff needs innovation, patient capital that's willing to throw money in yeah. and be in it for the long haul, right? Obviously, we're all happy um, if we get an ROI, an actual dollars and cents ROI. But see, the difference between angels and venture is that yep. in venture, that ROI is their business, their livelihood. In angels, it's their money. And you can, mm-hmm. you can accept an ROI that's not dollar related. Oh, so that's you, fair. Okay. So like yeah, I, yeah. I want money back. I'm not saying I, sure. I, I, in my business, we take some equity in these de- deals. We want real money back. Right. Having said that the ROI can also be yeah. s- establishing a future for humanity off planet. Am I willing to maybe go down from a 10 X ROI to an eight X ROI and say that two X I'm willing to, you know, swallow for, building a better future for yeah. the planet or what I envision is the future that I want to build. See, that's where all of a sudden you start, you know, not saying people don't want money and don't want to have a return. And this is like a crowdfunding where, you know, it's just, we're just happy and, you know, willing to donate. Right. I'm saying is those, it's a different level of tolerance, especially when you're talking about $100 checks or $1,000 checks, right? Where if that can matter for the future, the ROI can be quite a bit different, especially when you start talking portfolio theory. Well, and if, if we jump into just the individual for a second, right, mm-hmm. you, you took the major risk at 25 in your midlife crisis. I'm taking that risk now. There's a part of that that's uh, character built in, mm-hmm. nurtured, whatever you want to call it. But you said it earlier. I mean, humans, we want to have an impact somehow. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm you know, Mike, the, the truck driver or the truck logistics guy. And I, I'm 55. I, I, I can't switch my career 
but I still want to deeply be involved and help push humanity forward. Well, maybe I won't switch careers, but hell, I can, I can put a couple hundred, a couple thousand dollars towards actually seeing that take place. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you can't turn the wrench yourself, maybe you're paying the person to turn the wrench is one way of looking at it. But yeah, I mean, there's ways to be involved. We're building uh, the future we want to see, investing in the future we want to see. So, you know, it's, again, it's, this doesn't work if there aren't actual returns, right? Sure. Um, And so we, we do due diligence with the mindset that there's real returns here. But we also are very, you know, open risks is increased. Timeline risk is increased um, for everyone involved, right? We have to understand what we're doing here. We put a lot of effort in due diligence, due diligence our companies to make sure that the tech's real, you know, not breaking too many laws of physics <laughs> uh, or, you know, and there's an actual market for this. It's not just a product looking for, a, or, you know, a, pro- a solution looking for a problem. Sorry. Sure, sure. There is a, there is a problem there that can be fixed. Um, but having said that, there's oftentimes, sometimes the market doesn't know what it needs until it exists too, but you can't take too many of those risks either. So, you know, we're trying to find the top 1% of this aerospace industry and bring them to the public, but hopefully they're ready for that. You know, yeah. we, we don't, we can't guarantee any kind of return or anything like that, but hopefully they're ready for that. But this is also what I enjoy doing. So the conversations and we talk about hypersonics uh, with hybrid rocket engines and understanding all that. I, I love that and having those conversations. So we get to use that and, you know, share that with the public, yeah. um, that knowledge with the public in a way that gets a lot of people involved in the industry, mm-hmm. gives them access to really cool companies, not only to invest, but also just to follow on the story and kind of go from there. So on that, on that last point, uh, I know we need to be wrapping up decently soon here. Um, Right, so there's, there's ways to get involved. There's ways to turn the wrench. There's ways to invest in turning the wrench. We've talked about a ton of innovations that is probably going to make space travel much, much cheaper. Let's, let's say the next two decades. What sort of jobs, roles do you mm-hmm. really see developing? There's, you know, depending on which color channel you watch for your news, there's a ton of talk about mm-hmm. huge skills gap. Uh, we don't have, you know, mechanics, plumbers, X, Y, Z. Is the space industry going to gonna hit that or are we going to be able to automate a bunch of that? I guess I'm just curious where your thoughts are on future job yeah. growth of the industry. Well, there's, you know, probably different time horizons, of course. But, you know, they're, they're advanced manufacturing is taking manufacturing jobs and making them easier. But there's also still a lot of human involved in, in manufacturing for space. So I think there's a lot of on the ground jobs. I believe Florida opened up, I forget which institution, but they actually opened up like, um, you know, like a, like a skills school for like space skills and the space skills being like, you know, manufacturing and and building, um, stuff. So it's not just a white collar sort of thing or what have you, right? There's a lot of opportunities there. So I do think that that'll unfold. And you're talking about going from like 3,000 or something active satellites to now 30,000 active satellites over the next few years and potentially quite a bit more. That means there's a lot of opportunity in manufacturing in, in space. And that has its own unique requirements. And uh, there will be automation and robotics that helps to make that easier. But we're quite a ways away from like pushing a button and, uh, you know, a, a spacecraft being built 
just from that push of a button, right? You're still going to have technicians and things like that. I think there's opportunities there. Um, And yeah, I think there's just generally opportunities for creative problem solving in general. So engineering, (laughs) I think, is always going to probably be needed. (laughs) Well, to some point until we, you know, create the singularity with a mega AI that can solve all of our problems. Uh, But even so, the creative problem solving is quite a quite a unique human trait um, for for people to go and figure out what solutions based on all the different learnings they have uh, can be built. Right. So I think between engineers and things like that, there's always going to be opportunities there um, to solve problems creatively. I love that. All right. So final thing, and then I'll let you do a, do a, do a pitch for space ventures. If this whole show hasn't been one, (laughs) um, paint the picture for us, right? You're clearly an optimist. You want, you want to retire on Mars or at least visit, Mm -hmm. um, personally, like I really want to, you know, a honeymoon destination or, you know, 20th year anniversary up on the moon goals. Um, you're trying to create this future. Paint it for us. What what do you see? What's your ideal of that's actually tangible in the next 20, 40 years if we get our stuff together? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the goal is to have actual industry on the moon, you know, things being built on the moon, launched. Hmm. I would like to see a million people on Mars. So, you know, million-person city or whatever has its own requirements, and that doesn't happen without industry on the moon i would love to see orbital um space stations as well Mm -hmm. um in fact those would probably be better to live in but um you know so i'd love to see some of those i'm not sure that that's the the ones with artificial gravity there's several doing some real cool stuff but like Mm -hmm. as far as like an actual city um or you know like someone with something with like a hundred thousand people or something may or may not be totally viable within 20 years, but within 40, totally viable. Um, so I'm not talking like, you know, Elysium style. Um, but, um, there's definitely smaller versions of that that still have artificial gravity. Mm -hmm. You can actually do real things there. Um, and several people working on that. So I envision all three of those things and I want all three of those things. So, you know, solar power coming from orbit. Um, I, I anticipate fusion to be there, um, on the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I anticipate robots to be building a lot of stuff for us with robotics um, and advanced manufacturing and doing a lot of the heavy lifting and dangerous work for us on the moon, yeah. launching things off the moon with, you know, mm-hmm. essentially large cannons. Um, one's coming on the platform soon, yeah. you know, launching them to Mars from the moon, for, you know, with raw materials and, and things right. like that. Um, yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm anticipating. Love stuff it. Stuff like that. Yeah, I I'm like halfway through a high frontier and they <laughs> describe that back in the 70s let's industrialize the moon. Yeah, I don't my you know my visions really are not, nothing more than just repeating other people's visions sure. there um just seeing like it a little bit more real because I'm seeing the technology that enables it. Right. So um yeah, yeah, I think it's totally reasonable with the way we're accelerating innovation and what we're starting to see now is overlaps of technology where it matters. So hmm. we've got robotics in advanced manufacturing coming together, quantum enabling quantum robotics to help with advanced manufacturing, got advanced materials yeah. being with advanced manufacturing. All these things are starting to kind of come together 
when those happen, there's a lot of uh, talking about like paradigm shifters or whatever, a lot of paradigm shifting sort of technologies happening within the span of 20 years, not within the span of, you know, two centuries. Yeah. Ah, it's an exciting time. I, uh, I don't know if I would have had the patience to have been, to have seen us landing on the moon and be this in love with space. I hope I would have, but I'm just not quite sure. Yeah, I'm bound and determined to make sure that doesn't happen by bringing in <laughs> lots of investors. Uh, it doesn't happen again, I should say, right? right. Uh, to bring in lots of investors to, you know, push innovation at early stages faster, which is going to get innovation all the way through the pipe yeah. faster, um, get us get us moving. Like I just, you know, part of it's like a fear of not seeing that happen again, no matter what kind of bubbles we have. Sure. Not seeing something like that happen again force people, you know, to explore and move out into the solar system and then out into the stars eventually. I love it. Aaron, it's, it's been a pleasure. Um, you've got a couple exciting events coming up on the space ventures platform. Yeah. You know, so we have new deals coming out, uh, kind of consistently. Um, by the time this is live, I, you know, I don't know when, when they'll actually be out, but we That's have fair. new deals coming out consistently, um, on the platform. You know, we do love to have, you know, investors from all walks of life, but also from, you know, the space industry and things like that. Um, engineers and all that stuff. We need as many of you as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, always looking for, you know, new people to come on to the platform, whether you're a founder or an investor and, um, willing to, you know, have conversations and educate when we can. Fantastic. Well, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have links down in the description sure. for all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, Aaron, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for helping coordinate a little yeah. bit of this, of this space coast trip yeah. <laughs> means, means a lot for the, the one man show. So yeah. yeah, everyone else out there at Astra, keep dreaming. And, uh, if you haven't gone outside and enjoyed some blue sky, go get some blue sky. Cause it's, it's good for the soul. <laughs> All right. Cheers everybody. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the show. If you got some value out of this, drop us a review and a thumbs up wherever you're listening or watching this show. Uh, We had a review from Ben M016 the other day. Appreciate it, Ben. He said, love the long interview, which does a good job at deep diving into Cislunar Industries business model and aspirations. Hope to see more of those episodes. Ben... Uh, appreciate the review, man. Uh, there are more. This is installment number three, and we got more coming out every two weeks or so. So drop a review, and we'll be sure to read it on the show. Uh, check us out on the social medias. I am at J Vincent Maroli. Sounds like cannoli, ravioli, all that delicious Italian food. If you have any additional thoughts or questions about the show or, or being a guest on future episodes, Reach on out. LinkedIn, probably the best place. I'll get back to you promptly. If you're interested in investing in space, again, Spaced Ventures, these guys have a great platform. They really do their due diligence. So be sure to head over there and tell them who sent you. And until next time, go get some blue sky, and don't forget to aim and aim high. Blessings. Blessings.